Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Thank you so much for being here today. At The Mission Driven Mom, we'd really like to grow our influence for principal and mission-centered homes, and we can use your help. If you're liking these podcasts and they've been of value to you, we want to ask you to do a couple things. Make sure and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Share these podcasts with your friends and family via social media, email, and other means. Write a review so that others who are just becoming familiar with us can know how much you're enjoying it and that why they ought to tune in. And you can also join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group for the After the Show discussion. It's in there that we talk all about these podcasts and the information I've shared and go into greater depth. So head on over to Facebook and request to join that group. Today we get to do something really fun and that is talk about one of my greatest heroes, Albert Schweitzer, in this mission-driven story. I've mentioned him in a couple previous podcasts and talked a little bit about some of his story for a few minutes, but I want to tell you the whole story. I've studied his life a lot, read several of his books, and I just really look up to him. My personal mission statement is taken from his autobiography, and I'll share that with you at the very end of this podcast because it really resonates with who I am and what I'm about, and so I feel kind of that kinship with Albert Schweitzer. He grew up in a very wonderful home in Gunsbach. Um, France, it changed kind of countries a few times. That's another story, but that's where he grew up. His father was a pastor. He came from a long line of pastors. And it was a very religious home. Uh, He often talked about his very happy childhood. When he was eight, he asked his father for a copy of the New Testament, and he he read it and pondered it faithfully. He also made up his own prayer when he was young and prayed for animals and all creatures. He noticed the suffering in the world, and he was always very sensitive to it. One time, when he and his friend went out with their um, slingshots, His friend said that they should shoot down some birds. And at first, Schweitzer thought, oh, okay, well, yeah, I guess this is what kids do. He felt a little wrong about doing it, but he thought, well, maybe he would. When they finally got down on the ground and saw some birds and were about to shoot, he couldn't bring himself to do it. He dropped his slingshot, ran out, and shooed away the birds before any of them could be hit. The church bells went off instantly, and um, he felt... It was, it, was, it was a very important moment for him, and he dedicated himself to preserving life, which later led to the message that he shared with the world, and we'll get to that in a little bit. He said, With my three sisters and one brother, I lived through a very happy childhood, unclouded but for the frequent illness of my father. He was taught true principles as a child. Um, he was taught to love and to be a disciple of Jesus. And so his um, ability to love God was very um, apparent from a very young age, that he did love God and that he increased his love for God and his service for God throughout his life. That's kind of 
you know, how he learned law one. There was a lot of self-discovery in his younger years in the law two realm, um, loving himself. He did take good care of himself in terms of his physical and spiritual and mental and social needs. And you'll see that, that he um, kept all those things in check and in balance for himself, which helped him to have a happier life. But there were also some cool experiences with self-discovery. Now, music was part of his family's kind of culture. When he was five, his dad started giving him music lessons on an old square piano, which they'd inherited from his grandfather. He didn't really, his dad really didn't have much technical skill, but they just improvised and had a good time. When he was seven, he surprised his teacher at school by harmonizing with the hymns that they sang with harmonies that he supplied himself. So his music talent is really starting to bud. When he was eight and he could hardly reach the pedals, he began to play the organ and he fell in love with an organ and it was a lifelong love affair. I'll talk more about that um, as we get into his story, but it's really incredible that by the age of eight, when his toes could barely reach the pedal, he was up there plunking away at at the organ. And by the time he was nine, he was taking the place of the organist uh, for church services in Goonspach. He had a music teacher that uh, he was introduced to later on when he went to live with uh, his uncle when he was 10. He had a music teacher named Eugene Munch from the time that he was 15 to 18. And he said of this music teacher, I owe it to him that I became acquainted in my early years with the works of Bach and from my 15th year onwards enjoyed the privilege of sound instruction on the organ. Later on, he had a a, a successful uncle who was very generous and secured for him the instruction of a Parisian organist, Charles Marie Widor. And he said, this instruction was for me an event of decisive importance. He led me on to a fundamental improvement of my technique and made me strive to attain perfect plasticity in playing. So he started on the piano at five and through his younger years, he continued to play. And then in his teenage years, had a really great instructor. And from age 18 on, he had this really amazing instructor and it's, it's awesome because when that instructor died of typhoid fever, kind of in his, in his 20s, Schweitzer also became, became acquainted with his, became familiar, I guess, with his gift of writing because he had done well in writing at school, essay writing, and he had discovered that he kind of liked to write. But when this music instructor died so young, he just felt like his story had to be told and that it was on his shoulders to write the biography of this music instructor that had meant so much to him. And that was kind of the first work that he really cared about a lot and made happen and wrote, and it began really to develop his writing skills. And so these three loves, the love of God and music and uh, writing, really fashioned his life, and they were always his leisure activities throughout his life. He published many books. He had huge influence all throughout Europe musically. Um, In fact, there's a passage in The Hiding Place about when um, the Ten Booms go to hear a concert of Schweitzer's when he comes to Harlem to perform. I'm sure raising funds, um, but it's really cool because he was famous at that time and the Ten Booms knew who he was. 
So those were some cool self-discovery experiences that he had. Um, he truly was a man who found his worth in God and, and took the time to truly love himself and to develop his gifts. Now, his love of truth was born in his heart when he was young. And it's a theme. I'll read you a few quotes in a little bit from him about just how passionately he felt about the importance of being a truth seeker. But at, when he left home at age 10, you know, he lived in this little tiny town and there wasn't an upper school and he needed to prepare for university and for more advanced studies. And so he had a great uncle and his wife that took him in, in a nearby town. I think he probably spent like weekends and things at home, but he lived away from home. And at first he says he was a very poor scholar and his uncle was really strict, a very different kind of parent from his father. And so he really struggled. He said he was also kind of slack and dreamy, but he had um, a, a, a form master, they called them a teacher, Dr. Weem, who showed me how to work properly and gave me some self-confidence and then things went better. Um, he became to me a model of fulfillment of duty. And so this incredible teacher helped fashion his life and helped him to um, understand the importance of working hard and following, um, following through with those things that he needed to do. And through the influence of this great uncle and this teacher, he became um, a better worker, more disciplined, uh, more organized. And those were some principles that he really needed to learn at a young age. Another principle he was really uh, became adept at living and really honored all his life was gratitude. Throughout his life, he showed gratitude and you can read it in his works and especially in his autobiography. He expresses often he doesn't get bitter with people. He doesn't hold on to resentments. He just looks for whatever good is in them and whatever good they've done him. And I just, that's such an incredible character trait. He learned this um, at home and at school when he, um, when he wrote his book on Bach, he dedicated it to this great aunt that took him in and introduced him to his um, great organ teacher because he was so grateful to her for making that happen. Now, his love of humanity and his liberal education was expansive. He was definitely a lifelong learner and a truth seeker. It's really amazing to look at all the incredible things that he read and studied and loved. Um, and there are a few things that went, do went down during his um, university years that also helped shape his character and make him even more of a lover of God and a lover of truth. He first of all discovered pretty early on, he says it this way, preaching is a necessity of my being. I felt it as something wonderful that I was allowed to address a congregation every Sunday about the deepest questions of life. By the time he was 24, he was given the post of preacher at the Church of St. Nicholas in Strasbourg, and he held that post for a long time. I think probably until he went to Africa, most of that time he was preaching, and that would have been like 13 years. He said, the activities thus allotted me were a constant source of joy. And so while he was a full-time college student, he also preached on the weekend, and he also worked um, in the afternoons and helped with confirmation classes. 
In addition, he continued to study the organ and work on his music, and he made writing more of a priority. You know, by the time he was in his early 20s, like I was saying, he he started writing this autobiography, other works on Bach and Jesus and those kinds of things. Um, he, he became a great teacher and example to the boys that he worked with during this time when he really became acquainted with the needs of, of many, um, types of people through some experiences that I'll share in, in a few minutes about the call coming to him. You'll begin to see that this love of humanity came in two ways as, as it always does. And that is educationally through expanding your mind, learning about history, learning about, um, what goes on in other countries and other civilizations and kind of intellectually becoming aware of all the different things out there in the world that people think and people believe and also direct human service, you know, direct human contact. And that's, that's the other part of this that he engaged in constantly. There was not a time when he didn't spend part of his week in direct human service, uh, with some, with some group in need in the church. It was with boys, um, younger boys, young teenage boys. He says about that um, in teaching them, the aim of my teaching was to bring home to their hearts and thoughts the great truths of the gospel and to make them religious in such a way that in later life they might be able to resist the temptations of irreligion, which would assail them. Uh, He said, I worked hard with unbroken concentration, but without hurry. And he tried to make every moment count. So in the summers, when he had three months off, he devoted himself to science and music and studied more and wrote and practiced more heavily on his instrument. Um, He said he would put his efforts into teaching others. He started writing books. And um, one of his first books was a work on Bach that he uh, was able to find a publisher for. And when the German, they wanted a German version, he decided that he had to write it himself. And the book went from 450 pages to over 800. Um, He also was very concerned that modern organs weren't built in a way that supported the great music that was to be played on them. Now, of course, he was very versed by his early to mid twenties with all of the great, um, organ music that had been written. Of course, he has special fondness for Bach, of course, and he wanted to find a way to maintain these old, beautiful organs. And this became a central passion for him and a work of service and love that he engaged in all his life. Um, he's, he, he devoted himself to discovering how, what was the difference between how organs were being made in the modern time at the turn of the century and how they had been made, you know, the hundred or 200 years prior. And so he started traveling, um, all over Europe and visiting organs at different churches and studying them to try to figure out the differences And he eventually became equipped to restore great organs to their original capacity and teach others how to do this as well. And, and I love this because it shows how any passion, any good work that we want to do, any good thing that we're interested in can turn into a work of service. 
we can use it to help the, the community at large in some way. This is what he says about it. To the struggle for the true organ, I have sacrificed much time and much labor. Many a night have I spent over organ designs which had been sent to me for approval or revision. Many a journey have I undertaken in order to study on the spot the question of restoring or rebuilding an, or an, an organ. Letters running into the hundreds have I written to bishops, deans, presidents of conservatories, mayors, incumbents, church committees, he goes on and on, to try to convince them it may be that they ought to restore their fine old organs instead of replacing them by new ones. And he often lost the battle and it was somewhat discouraging, but sometimes when he won, it was really so rewarding for him. And this is what he says about it. Uh, he said his friends would joke that um, later on, we'll talk about this in a minute, he was healing Africans in Africa and in Europe he was healing organs. He said, the work and worry that fell to my lot through the practical interest I took in organ building made me sometimes wish I had never troubled myself about it. Uh, I think we've I probably all felt that way sometime about some great undertaking that we've um that we've undertaken, even if it's just motherhood. Why did I get myself into this? But he goes on to say, but if I do not give up, the reason is that the struggle for the good organ is to me part of the struggle for truth. And I, when I first read that, it was so fascinating to me that as a truth seeker, he felt that his understanding and love of the organ placed an obligation on his shoulders to restore old organs so that great organ music could be played and appreciated by people all over Europe and that in this way they would be drawn closer to truth, closer to God, and and their lives would be enriched. And so it's it's amazing what being a truth seeker really can 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 cause you to feel passion about and and what good it can help you to do. He said that he loved studying the natural sciences. It brought me even more than the increase of knowledge I had longed for. It was to me a spiritual experience. I was concerned with truths which embodied realities. Um, and he, he, so he really loved studying science and finding truth there. And then he goes on to say, intoxicated as I was with the delight of dealing with realities which could be determined with exactitude in the sciences, I was far from any inclination to undervalue the humanities as others in a similar position often did. So he gets it, you know, he knows that people sometimes trample on the humanities and, and um, literature as lesser than the sciences. For him, he says, on the contrary, through my study of chemistry, physics, zoology, botany, and physiology, I became more than ever conscious to what an extent truth is thought is justified and necessary side by side with the truth, which is, which is merely established by facts. No doubt something subjective clings to the knowledge, which results from a creative act of the mind. But at the same time, such knowledge is on a higher plane than the knowledge based only on the facts. So what he's saying here is that what he found is that in the humanities, he found truths that were higher than facts. In science, it was fun to find exact answers and to see facts clearly. But in the humanities, he saw that there were higher truths that he could seek 
and um, that the purpose of those um, humanities was to find these truth and truths and to relate them to our relationship with God. He says, we can find our right place in the being that envelops us only if we experience in our individual lives, the universal life, which wills and rules it. And he really felt like, um, it is to this reflective knowledge, he said, of the universal being and the relation to it of the individual human being that humanity seek to attain. So for him, um, the truth he came to was that science was compelling, fascinating, enthralling, but the humanities were something higher and more noble and that they helped us to seek out the noble and um, the godlike characteristics inside us and to connect those with God himself and that that was the purpose of the humanities. He said that through my coming to an understanding of others' thoughts, my own became clearer. And so this experience in, um, and, and, in, in studying about the world and loving humanity through that self-education and liberal arts experience. And then in these experiences in law five that I'm going to get into right now and having one-on-one human experiences, um, with the less fortunate, it really fashioned his character and he truly was mission driven by this point. So, In his early 20s, he had had some of these experiences. He had done music, he had written, he had studied at the university, he had read the greats, he had had great mentors, he had come drawn closer to truth, learned to love preaching and teaching and serving. And I I think I've read this in another podcast, but I'm going to read it again because his words are beautiful. And this is how the beginning of the call came for him. It was a several year pursuit to discover the exact work he felt he was called to do, even though he felt called to do other works, you know, he felt called to restore organs. He felt called to write and to perform, but this was something different. Let me read you this. It struck me as incomprehensible that I should be allowed to lead such a happy life while I saw so many people around me wrestling with care and suffering. Even at school, I felt stirred whenever I got a glimpse of the miserable home surroundings of some of my school fellows and compared them with the absolutely ideal conditions in which we children of the parsonage at Goonsbach lived. While at the university and enjoying the happiness of being able to study and even to produce some results in science and art, I could not help thinking continually of others who were denied that happiness by their material circumstances or their health. Then one brilliant morning at Goonsbach, during the holidays, there came to me as I awoke the thought that I must not accept this happiness as a matter of course, but must give something in return for it. Proceeding to think the matter out at once with calm deliberation while the birds were singing outside, I settled with myself before I got up that I would consider myself justified in living till I was 30 for science and art in order to devote myself from that time forward to the direct service of humanity. Many a time already had I tried to settle what meaning lay hidden for me in the saying of Jesus, whosoever would save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. Now the answer was found. In addition to outward, I now had inward happiness. So it is absolutely amazing to me when I read that from Albert Schweitzer, it really was a life-changing moment for me that this young man 
would determine that he needed to devote his life to humanity in direct service to them, in gratitude for all that God had given him, just absolutely floored me. And it it left me a different person. And I've been really admired him ever since. Not just because he made the commitment, but because he followed through the commitment. And, and we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about what price he had to pay to do what it was that he did. I do sometimes feel like the opposition that we experience is probably in direct proportion to the impact that we can have. And if we'll look at that opposition as proportionate, then the greater the opposition, the more inclined we'll be to fight because we can see that that opposition is going to lead to something great. Um, So he decided that he wanted this service to humanity to be directly human service. And he just didn't have any idea what it might be. He wanted to become very good at it. He wanted to do it full time. And, And so he began looking for it. He thought, obviously, that he would do something in Europe. And so he went through, over a period of years, different experiences where he tried giving different kinds of service to see how he felt about it. And of course, did good along the way, but was hoping to kind of gain insight into what he ought to do. So at first, he worked with abandoned and neglected children by educating them and helping them to find positions in the future and to make something of themselves. He also, he says he offered his help. Um, it, it, it wasn't super successful. When an orphanage burned down, he offered to take in a few boys and he thought maybe that would turn into something. For a while, he thought he would devote himself to tramps and discharged prisoners. And he did some work in that realm, but it didn't feel like the right path. And then for a while, he worked with, uh, he joined a student association so that he could work with poor families in the area. And these young men were assigned a certain number of poor families, and they were supposed to visit them every week and find out what their needs were and help to educate them. And then what money was donated, they were kind of to judiciously distribute this among these families. And a couple times a year, that meant that he had to go and fundraise. And the skill he gained here was invaluable because he spent the rest of his life pretty much having periods of time where he was, was trying to fundraise in one way or another. He said he hated it. Um, He was very awkward and shy. They were a torture to him, but he learned how to do it tactfully and he learned what you should and shouldn't say and shouldn't, shouldn't do. And it, and it really was a blessing to him later on. So he, he knew that he might have to dedicate himself to an existing organization, but he, he preferred to do something independent if he possibly could. So then after a few years of trying out these different, you know, he he was continuing in his studies. He was doing his music. He was writing his books and preaching and teaching and serving, but always in the back of his mind thinking, okay, well, when I'm 30, I need to know what it is I'm going to devote my life to. And as he approached that time, the answer, um, the answer came. So, um, he says one morning in the autumn of 1904, I found on my writing table in the college, one of the green covered magazines in which the Paris Missionary Society reported every month on its activities. A certain Miss Sherdlin used to put them there knowing that I was specially interested in this society. That evening, in the very act of putting it aside that I might go on with my work, I mechanically opened the magazine which had to be laid, which had been laid on my table during my absence. 
As I did so, my eye caught the title of an article, The Needs of the Congo Mission. The writer expressed his hope that his appeal would bring some of those, quote, on whom the master's eyes already rested, unquote, to the decision to offer themselves for this urgent work. The conclusion ran, this is the article, men and women who can reply simply to the master's call, Lord, I am coming. Those are the people whom the church needs. Having finished the article, I quietly began my work. My search was over. My 30th birthday, a few months later, I spent like the man in the parable who, desiring to build a tower, first counts the cost whether he have wherewith to complete it. The result was that I resolved to realize my plan of direct human service in equatorial Africa. So this was many, many years in the making. He had been thinking about it for a very long time, had not told people that he was thinking about it, and had resigned within himself that this was how he wanted to spend his life, was in service to humanity, and that he would find the right work, and he really, he just knew. The Spirit witnessed to him that this was the work God had for him, and here's what it meant. Medical school. He was not a doctor. And he could not go and be a medical doctor in Africa without a medical degree and a whole bunch of other things that I'll tell you he had to do to get there. And, um, you know, this is when in the mission driven life in law five, this is a pattern that Schweitzer helped me uncover and many others helped me uncover when this call comes there's many obstacles and you know you can give yourself to god and let him know that you want to serve him and then go about trying to find the work or maybe you'll just know what work it is that you need to do and then you'll go about trying to find a way but there will always be opposition that's another principle and there will always be a message that you feel called to relay so let me tell you a little bit about those experiences for schweitzer he decided to announce his decision to go to medical school and be a doctor in Africa by writing a bunch of letters to all his friends and family. And he put them in the mailbox the same day so that everyone would get them at the same time or about the same time. And no one would feel like they were the privileged few or whatever. And everybody fought him. He didn't say directly if his immediate family was also in opposition but virtually everybody was. He said, they tormented me beyond measure during those first few difficult weeks. They thought that he was doing something preposterous. He was already publishing books. He was um, a gifted performer. He was giving concerts. He was restoring organs. I mean, from, for all intents and purposes, he not only had accomplished more than many people accomplish in a lifetime. He not already had received more accolades than most people receive in a lifetime. He was very mission driven. I mean, he, he was a professor. He was a preacher. He was, uh, he was an organist. He restored organs. He wrote, he wrote books. He, he just, he studied. He was already a really amazing guy. And people just thought, what are you doing? You're throwing it all away to go be some hero in Africa. This is ridiculous. And so they really tried to talk him out of it. He said, in the many verbal duels, which I had to fight as a weary opponent 
with people who passed for Christians, it moved me strangely to see them so far from perceiving that the effort to serve the the love preached by Jesus may sweep a man into a new course of life, although they read in the New Testament that it can do so and found it there quite in order. He said he was really amazed that some of the people who were the most against him were preachers and pastors who should know better. That's why that's why he's quoting that. They, they've read the Gospels. They know that God calls us to do all kinds of kind of crazy things sometimes, and they should have supported him. He says, in general, how much I suffered through so many people assuming a right to tear open the doors and shutters of my inner self. They gave all all kinds of reasons why he thought they thought he must be doing this because he hadn't gotten married yet because um, because he wasn't didn't think he was accomplishment accomplished enough blah 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 and he you know and they questioned I mean some of them almost questioned his sanity like are you like in your right mind do you really know what you're doing here and he said you know I I had to do a lot of self examination I had to go back to God quite a bit and I had to reevaluate am i really on the right track is this really what i'm feeling called to do and indeed uh he really he knew that it was um he said what seemed to my friends the most irrational thing in my plan was that i wanted to go to africa not as a missionary but as a doctor and thus when already 30 years of age burden myself as a beginning with a long period of laborious study and that this study would mean for me a tremendous effort. I had no manner of doubt. I did, in truth, look forward to the next few years with dread. But the reasons which determined me to follow the way of service I had chosen as a doctor weighed so heavily that other considerations were as dust in the balance. His studies, his medical studies, took seven years. He had to fund them himself. And at first, they weren't going to let him continue to teach And luckily he was able to do some teaching in order to provide some income for himself. And then he gave some concerts. He said, now began continuous, now began years of continuous struggle with fatigue. While I studied medicine, I at the same time delivered theological lectures and preached almost every Sunday. He also continued to work with organs and give concerts so that he could provide for himself in medical school. It did get better over time. He earned more money giving his concerts. Um, And eventually, after seven long years of awfully hard work, he said on December 17th, 1911, after my last examination, I strode out of the hospital into the darkness of the winter evening. I could not grasp the fact that the terrible strain of the medical course was now behind me. Again and again, I had to assure myself that I was really awake and not dreaming. Now I had to complete the year of practical work as a volunteer in the hospitals and to write my thesis for the doctorate. Um, so he, he has to do these seven years of medical school, provide for himself, go through, through that exhausting experience. And then there's more obstacles. Imagine what he has to do now. He is offering to go to Africa as a medical doctor at his expense. He's not even asking the mission to support him financially. What does that mean? That means he had to go do his practical work and practice medicine and make sure he was good enough to do it. And he had to get everything ready for this mission in the Congo. He'd never lived there. I don't think he'd even ever been there. 
And he had to try to figure out what medicine he would need, what supplies he would need, how much and he had to he had to go to friends and acquaintances, he says, to obtain the necessary funds for my undertaking. I undertook a round of begging visits among my acquaintances and experienced in full measure the difficulty of winning their support. Many people gave him money just because they loved him and knew him so well. Um, much came from his congregation at St. Nicholas and from his students. And so he, he <laughs> spent all this time in medical school and he has raised this money himself and now he goes to the missionary society that started it all and says, okay, now I'm ready to go be a missionary at my own expense in this, um, in your mission in, as part in, he went to the Paris missionary society and guess what they said? Um, we're not, we don't think we want you. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my heavens. He, had to put up with all the opposition from friends and family. He had to go through all those grueling years of school. He had to go around and beg for money. He had to figure out what in the heck he needed to get everything over there to be able to take care of these people medically. And then the mission says, well, you've written all these books on Jesus and we don't think you agree with us theologically and you're going to be a bad influence. So he has to try to figure out a way to clear this up. So he assures them, I'm not going to preach. First of all, I don't want to be a, a preacher. I'm just going to be a doctor. So that makes some of them feel better. But there's still this committee that has to approve him and they're being sticklers. And they want him to come to this committee meeting and answer their questions. And he's got some good diplomacy skills by this point. And his life experiences and his education have made him a really tactful guy. And so he says, you know what? Um, I'm not going to do that. That's not a good idea, but this is what I'll do. I'll go and visit each committee member personally, and I'll answer any questions they have. And so he talks to them one-on-one -on -one when he can build a relationship with them and he wins all of them over. And when that's all done, he finds out that the colonial department of France has to give him a grant. He has to, they have to grant him the permission to go to Africa because he only has a German diploma. And he says, with the help of influential acquaintances, this last difficulty also was got over and at last the road was clear. So you wanna talk about those principles of the call, hearing the call and and um, pushing through the obstacles, completing your preparation, um, just absolutely amazing to me. And in Law 6, he's got to go out and do the work and share his message. So I, I know this, this podcast is going a little long. I'm going to try to tie up the loose ends here, uh, what he did at the la for the rest of his life, how he lived these last two laws. But I think you're be might be getting to see what an amazing individual he is and how, why I look up to him so much. Now, he says it was time to go. He had everything on its way there. And he says not to preach anymore, not to lecture anymore was for me a great sacrifice. And until I left for Africa, I avoided as far as possible 
going past either St. Nicholas's or the university because the very sight of the places where I had carried on work, which I could never resume, was too painful for me. He says later on that this experience was for him much like um, Abraham, that he was asked to make some of the greatest sacrifices in order to engage in the work he felt God wanted him to do. But he did it. He left. Um, Luckily, he met a great woman during those last couple years of medical school and they married and she was able to go with him and he had her support. So he heads over to Africa and here's what he says when he first gets there. From the very first days before I had even found time to unpack the drugs and instruments, I was besieged by sick people. The chief diseases I had to deal with were malaria, leprosy, sleeping sickness, dysentery, Uh, He goes on, ulcers and urinary diseases. He says, every year sees a number of unfortunate mortals doomed to die a painful death from strangulated hernia from which a timely operation might have saved them. Thus, I had during the very first weeks full opportunity for establishing the fact that physical misery among the natives is not less but even greater than I had supposed. How glad I was that in defiance of all objections, I had carried out my plan of going out there as a doctor. On his first trip, he had to learn a lot of things he didn't think he was going to have to learn how to do, how to build the building. They had far too many people. What had to happen was the people had to travel in and their family had to stay with them until they were well because they had to come in from all the surrounding villages and they couldn't travel back and forth. And so he pretty quickly figured out that it wasn't just running, you know, he wasn't going to just be able to be a doctor. He had to run a hospital and he had to kind of run um, a little mini housing (laughs) district type of thing and figure out how to kind of house these people, shelter them, feed them. He had to work out all the parameters for that. He was smart enough to think of having them give a gift in exchange. They could offer any gift that they wanted. Most of them brought some kind of food offering and they were able to put this in kind of to a, a, a large community of food and then give out rations. Um, within just a few months, he had 40 patients to care for and house and feed. And along with all their families, that meant 100 or more people. So you can imagine the huge inundation. It was massive, a massive undertaking. He was in way over his head really quickly but he bore up under the weight of the obligations. He tried to find men to help him build the necessary shelters and buildings and organize his supplies and kind of try to figure out what he was doing there. One really great thing that happened was that over time, as he worked with the Christian missionaries, they came to see that his heart was in the right place and that ethically and morally, he really did agree. I mean, he was very Christian, (laughs) Christian. Um, Anyway, eventually he was able to begin preaching again, which he was very excited about. He was there for four years. And um, while he was there, they were able to get things going and, and kind of, they figured a lot of things out. But what happened is that the war broke out, World War I, because this is 1917. And they were French in Africa. And so they came in and told that they were going to be taken to a prisoner of war camp. Their health had broken down. He and his wife were were pretty physically debilitated by this point. The four years had really kind of done a number on them. And then they were put into this prison camp. Luckily, he says it was so cool because it's kind of like that karma, how good is returned to you. And 
He saw again and again that the good that he had done for other people caused them to turn around and do good for him. That was a really cool experience for him to see. Because of his abilities as a doctor, eventually he was given his own room and able to um, offer medical services to the people in the camp. And um, eventually they were allowed, to, they were released and allowed to go home. Now, during his first trip there, about uh, two years in, about the middle of this time, he said that he, he was always trying to find a conception of life that was ethical and based in thought. That he had thought about this for a very long time. He wanted a simple formula that was true philosophically and ethically, but was also practical and would show men how to live. Some great governing first principle that he could that he could live by, that he could t preach, that he could teach to the natives and to anyone that he had influence over and that he felt that they would initially, it would resonate with them and that it would cause greater good to come from them. So at one point, um, he, so at one point he resolved to find the answer and he spent several months pondering this question continually. So one day, uh, he was on a boat trip down the river. And for three days, he filled a notebook with thoughts and ideas to keep himself concentrated on the problem. Can you imagine the incredible amount of intellectual concentration that re this required? And he's being prayerful and he's kind of has his thoughts drawn upward. He said, finally, the words came to his mind. There have flashed upon my mind, unforeseen and unsought the phrase, reverence for life. And this became his message, his guiding message he compared this idea um, to, to Descartes, I think, therefore I am. He says, this is what it boiled down to, that we, I am life which wills to live in the midst of life which wills to live. And it is as will to live in the midst of will to live that man conceives himself during every moment that he spends in meditating on himself and the world around him. This is the absolute fundamental principle of the moral and it is, a it is a necessity of thought. And so it was with that message that he began to, um, to give out to the world. I'll just wrap up here really quickly. He went home. He was very, very ill. He stayed home for several years trying to get well. He had to go through two horrible surgeries because of this debilitating dysentery. He finally retained his health. He, it was recommended to him that he go to Switzerland that had done well in the war and give concerts there. Um, there were a lot of debts from the hospital uh, because he just had to keep borrowing to keep taking care of these people and he could have written them off as charity. He did not. He went to Switzerland. He earned the money. He paid back the debts. And then his thoughts returned to Africa and he started thinking, you know, at one point I thought maybe I'd never go back, but I realized now that I probably could. And so during this time between visits, he started riding on the edge of the primal forest a book publisher had asked him to do that, and they included pictures that a photographer took that was there with them the first year. And so this book went back out. He left his wife and his five-year-old daughter at home, went back for two or three more years, realized they had to completely rebuild the hospital in another location using corrugated metal to make it more um, sturdy and long-lasting. And they got to the point where they were housing 150 people, more nurses and doctors came, it grew, they started up, you know, and, and that was really his law seven, do it again. He didn't have to go back, but he did go back. He didn't have to pay off the debts, but he did pay off the debts. 
and he told his stories to the world and that enabled him to get more funds to keep growing it and then he would make trips back and forth he would come home he would tour fix up organs <laughs> give concerts raise funds um get help and then go back again for the rest of his life and of course in 1952 he was awarded the nobel prize for his reverence for life philosophy it was um in Oslo in 54 that he gave his speech, his Nobel Prize acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize. It's considered one of the best speeches ever given. So I'd recommend that to you to go and read. The Ho Albert Schweitzer Hospital is still there. It treats 30,000 patients per year and it is a great monument to a great man. His life has affected millions upon millions of people. Mine, you know, one of, of those millions. A friend said of him once, uh, a, a man who was hosting him on a speaking tour in Britain, he said, we were a little apprehensive of his arrival at our modest home. They were worried what he was going to be like when he got there. This man said, as soon as he came into the room, he put us all at our ease at once. He brought with him an atmosphere of goodwill and happiness. I can see him now with my little daughter of seven on his knee, playing tunes for her on the piano and guiding her little fingers over the keys. Last of all, I want to share with you something that he wrote in his autobiography that struck me like lightning and has stayed with me. It's if you've ever gotten an email from me, it's at the bottom of my emails because it is my guiding mission statement, which I got from Albert Schweitzer. He, in talking about what's happening in education and how um, it's causing a moral decay and his concerns and grievances over that problem. He said, I aim at making people morally better by making them think. And that encapsulates everything that I'm about. I want to make people think because really when we don't see the truth, it's because our shallow is too thinking is it, our thinking is too shallow. The truth is there. We just have to think deeper. We have to dig deeper. We have to try harder and find that truth that is, that is waiting for us to be a light to us and to guide us on our way. Thank you so much for joining me and remember to make sure to subscribe, share, review, and join the mission driven mom mastermind Facebook group for the after show. You can also head on over to themissiondrivenmom.com to get your free copy of the Mission Driven Life book and to get the show notes, quotes, and book recommendations from this episode. See you next time.